And we are live with our 46th episode of Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Welcome once again to Absolute AppSec. Uh, tonight we are joined by Daniel Meisler. Am I saying that right, Daniel? That's right. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> who's been around for a while. Uh, if you're familiar with the Seclist project, I think that's first where I got to know Daniel uh, as he's running that. Not necessarily like talking with him face to face, so it's nice to actually get a you know, put a face to a name and interact with you a little bit, you know, live rather than through, you know, your repository on GitHub. Um, and, but other than that, right, uh, there's been a lot going on. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling healthy again. So hopefully like I don't sound so quite as crappy as I did last week, Ken, <clears throat> you know. Yeah. Now you, you were, it was a little rough for you last week. <laughs> a little you rough. Powered. Yeah. You yeah, I powered through job it, yeah. power, powering through it, but it was your voice was really, really scratched up. Yeah, I could. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to go back and listen to that one, just mainly because that. Not because you know Sean didn't have good stuff to say, but whatever. Um, on the absolute AppSec front, I, you know, if you've been on the podcast or you're interested in a T-shirt, you know, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, please get your questions in either on Slack or email or on the YouTube. Uh, you know the the channel site um, for Daniel or for us, whatever. Uh, we're always here. We're always willing to reach out and you know, at least answer questions or at least attempt to answer questions if we don't know or if we can find people that know the answer. Um, I don't think there's anything else from a you know organizational perspective. Ken, is there anything that we're forgetting? No, I am forgetting. Uh, no I don't. No, I don't think that there's anything that we're forgetting. Um, I am going to be checking the YouTube uh, live chat as always and Slack channel. And so will Seth to uh, make sure that we get any of the questions that come that come through. Um, so the AppSec Minute, uh, do you want to roll right into that, Seth? Sure. Sure. Uh, this week, um, AppSec Minute, we wanted to talk about cluster fuzz, right? Uh, so Google open sourced their backend for OSS fuzz. Uh, it's the, uh, the fuzzing uh, tool that they use actually for Chrome, and they're, they've used it for other open source projects. You know, there's something like 160 of them. We'll post the link up there. Uh, but it, it spurred an interesting discussion between me and Ken about, you know, fuzzing in general. Obviously, testing is something that we talk about all the time. Um, I've done a talk on security unit testing and building it in, and this is this fits right into that uh, that functionality, right? That um, testing activity that should be going on. Like and uh, as a consultant, I've never never really you know done something at the level of cluster fuzz, and so I wanted to ask Ken you know on, you know live as we were on air this week uh, you know what what GitHub does and that and then how they've actually like what his their approach is to fuzzing uh, as opposed to what I do as a tester when I come in for a couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, uh, so. What had happened was uh, one of our team members, Philip, he actually implemented um, a version of OSS fuzz uh, built on top of it. And uh, I was curious how it worked because I had no experience with um, fuzzing, using the, the tool to fuzz uh, like C-level libraries and, and the stuff that he was doing. So the the basic gist is that it has this, you know, huge... Um, not just the ability to like, or, or not just, it's not just the, the actual like type of fuzzing that it does, but there's some neat 
things you can do in terms of scalability to cut down the amount of time it takes for your tests to run. And that is basically how it works from what he showed me, which was, you know, you created, let's say you have a, a C-level library that you import and it has functions exposed and maybe you would normally call those functions, pass in some arguments. Um, the way you do that uh, is you set up a test using uh, the fuzzer where you invoke that method um, and the arguments passed to it are essentially fuzzed. Um, so that was the sort of walkthrough that we went through. I don't know if that makes sense, Seth, or if I didn't summarize that in a way that- No, it, it, it does. I mean, the main thing that I was going at is what the advantages of using something like OSS fuzz or cluster fuzz was over, you know, handwriting your own tests. Um, and I, like, and I, like from, from my perspective, it's really, okay, you're trying to find these, you know, memory overflow or underflow vulnerabilities. Um, you know, typically we're not necessarily looking at the, the, the same sort of fuzz list, like the sec list, right? You know, we're looking at, hey, what happens when we overflow a, an integer? What happens to this library and how you interact with it? Uh, that being said, the, the cluster fuzz website itself has an example of how to find heartbleed using cluster fuzz, which mm. is a pretty interesting exercise. I, you know, I think hey, guess what, you know, had we actually run this, we would have popped, you know, Heartbleed or the vulnerability that was exploited as Heartbleed would have been found sooner in OpenSSL. But, you know, it, it also is, okay, so why why weren't we running something like this against it? Or, you know, where was the drop down? Or what? where did we fall down in identifying those vulnerabilities? So, like, you should be implementing some sort of fuzzing um, if you're not, I mean, you know, that leads right into what Daniel kind of does with sec lists. Um, I know that's uh, that's kind of a lot to maintain nowadays, Daniel. I mean, how much time do you have to actually put in to maintaining those lists of, you know, fuzz payloads? Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, real quick on, on the tool, it seems, it seems to me like if I heard that Google was getting into something, I would imagine they'd be standardizing and collecting tons of content for the fuzzer and basically yeah. bringing that into a framework and then um, somehow making it more scalable. Like if that's multiple things can be tested at once or, um, I mean, I'm not really a fuzzer person, so I'm not sure, but it seems like they would be um, just making it more usable for themselves, which means, you know, bigger and more standardized. Um, as far as cyclists go, it's kind of a sad story there. I mean, uh, Myself, the other person running the project is Jason uh, Haddix, uh, uh, my close buddy. Um, and uh, there's actually someone named Got Milk, um, who is kind of, I don't know, I, I don't know this person personally, but they, I think, are super just prolific in, in security. I think they might run part of Cali. Do you guys know who this person is? Yeah, I'm familiar with God Milk's work for sure. I mean, which basically, um, for those who don't know, you had mentioned prolific. Yeah, there's a ton of like, uh, I want to say CVEs and whatnot that you can attribute to uh, God Milk. Yeah, and I heard there's a really popular, I think it was a fuzzing tutorial that this person put out many, many years ago, and it's still like the number one tutorial or something. But anyway, so what happened was uh, Jason and I were working on the project. This was like a year and a half ago or whatever. And Dot Milk shows up and says, hey, I've got some ideas. Would you like 
you know, I really like the project. Would you like for me to help out? And here's what I could do. In the sense, in the time sense, for like a year and a half, Got Milk has basically taken over managing the whole thing, has done tons of work, has done a reorganization. Me and Jason are about to do a reorganization as well. But just taking in pull requests, dealing with um, all the various comments, just fantastic. Uh, we put them on the, the leader list of the project uh, a couple months back because of it. Nice. That's not a sad story at all. <laughs> That's actually <laughs> well, well, for me and Jason, we, we just feel bad because it's like, holy crap, this, this person is like uh, doing so much of the work right now. No, I mean, Got Milk has done, I mean, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that in terms of just uh, not only like the, the, the known attributed volumes, but I think Got Milk had done a bit this last year with um, bug bounties, I thought. I could be wrong, but I could have swore that. I, I wouldn't be surprised. It, it seems like someone who, um, oh, and I, I said, hey, what's your name? Uh, because I want to put you on the project leader list. And they're like, oh, just just put got milk. Like, I don't care about that. So I have a feeling they're just kind of running around the entire internet, making everything work. That's my <laughs> well, feeling. They're uh, they're Debian Open SSL prediction uh, PRNG um, tool. Which let me link to this. Uh, this was actually something that gets has multiple times been submitted via bug bounty as like a reference for this is why I think you're vulnerable. Um, so mm. people still use these tools and it was originally committed. What, like, I think the first commit might've been six years ago. <laughs> so, yeah. and I'm, I mean, we're talking about this year, bug bounties already have been, been submitted with, uh, with that reference. Mm. So, yeah. Awesome. No, that's cool. I, I mean, yeah, I, I, at least somebody is, you know, has the time to actually commit to those. Right. That's, a, that's always yeah. the, the thing that I fear when, you know, I'm putting tools out or whatever is I, I, I know my attention span and I know it always gets busy with work and life and everything else. And so you don't want it to die. Um, yeah. So like those active projects that, you know, where somebody actually is willing to step in, that's cool. Um, I mean, and that's, that, that's very useful from a bug bounty perspective, especially, right? A lot of those lists and even password lists and everything else. I know that Seclist has been, has been, you know, held up as kind of like, oh, this is be kind of becoming the, the gold standard of, hey, we can pull from there, and at least it's got the data, and even if it isn't complete, you know, at least we could submit something or actually patch something, right? Rather than using the old Rocky lists or whatever else. So yeah, it's the idea was like basically a pen tester's companion, so it basically would have mm -hmm. all the different stuff. Someone asked recently, actually, it was. Um, What's his name? Tom Tones, the Recon NG guy. Oh, Tim, Tim Tones. Tones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was like, um, "Tell me again why this is different than Fuzz uh, FuzzDB." Um, and I was like, "Well, because it's it's all lists. It's like usernames, passwords, countries. Like it, it's it's not just stuff that you would fuzz with, um, but collections of all kinds of stuff." I'm about to redo uh, Robots Disallowed which is uh, like the modern version of, um, I believe the Raffless, but I'm about yeah. to redo uh, the Alexa 100K 
And I'm going to use uh, Chromium as the uh, user agent instead of Curl this time, just because I think more people are blocking Curl. Um, but yeah, I, I think the uh, harvesting the robots.txt stuff is super useful. Yeah, I'm actually trying to keep up here. And uh, so I pasted in the link to robots disallowed. Um, so this is a project that harvested the disallowed directories from robots.txt files of the world's top websites using Alexa 100,000, 100K, whatever. Um, so it's basically a list of potential high value targets. Cool. So that's sort of like a, a way to just enumerate directories that might be uh, directories and files that might be available, um, but not linked to on an application, looks like. Yeah, well, basically what I did was first get the whole list, but th then I just sorted by the most common. So if you even take like the top 100 of those, if you get any hits on them, they're going to be really good. It's going to be like slash admin slash backup backup.back or, or whatever. Um, Jason is big in the uh, in the bounty scene still, and he, he uses it all the time. Yeah. No, I, I, I know that's where it's been super useful, right? Like, those are those are the ones. I, I mean, initially, that was what Greg Fleischer was the one that put that together when we did the raft word lists, right? Um, and that was the idea. So it was like, hey, this, this seems pretty interesting even like as a consultant, as I'm on an assessment and I want to see, hey, what else is out there? That that's where I'm pulling from. From yep. uh, you know, there, there's all sorts of other ideas of you know sources for those. So it's uh, like, but um, just the fact that those are denied, like, is, is super high value. You're right. Yeah. Super please high don't value. look. Please don't look at my admin directory or my backup directory. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, the more that exists out there. I, the other one that I've been I've been thinking about a lot lately, you know, we've been looking at a lot of code. Me and Ken, I, I keep thinking that that dot get ignore file. Um, it'd be interesting to do a, a similar analysis on that, right? <clears throat> Actually, see, all right, what is it that people are ignoring from Git that may be ending up in a website? But you know, if you want to add something to your list, right? That's that's always fun. Mm, yeah. Yeah, we should talk. Maybe maybe we just like a separate thing, separate project. Yeah, we should. That would be a good idea. Yeah, yeah, we should talk because I think we could actually pull some of the stuff that's on Git, query it, and then build a list around that. That we wouldn't actually have to query. Um, anyway, we can take that offline. It could be a fun yeah. one as well. It's it's not a lot of effort to put something like that together. It usually takes longer to scan than it does to actually write the code, right? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Cool. Um, sorry, Ken, we got completely off topic on absolute, uh, the, the AppSec minute piece, right? But this it all fits into the fuzzing, right, of what happens when we're doing an assessment. Um, yeah, like, I, I mean, that's, that's how I kind of view fuzzing from a consulting perspective. And I know from a library perspective, uh, the, you know, the cluster fuzz is a good tool to have in your in your back pocket if you're scanning a large library because of exactly what Daniel was saying. It will expand out, it'll, it'll um, I mean, Google's written it so they can do a whole bunch of fuzzing all at the same time and it doesn't take very long. I think that's the idea behind it. Um, at GitHub, are you doing the same thing with a whole bunch of bots then? I mean, it sounds like it. Yeah, I mean, the, the point for us, um, which I think it, this is where the use is for, for like in your company is that we've got these various technology stacks that we have to interact with. Um, 
and they have cl we have clients right written in C that will interact with um, with those those various technologies, um, and you know that is a really helpful thing to be able to uh, to fuzz those libraries um, and even report even if it's an open source um, tool or repository to even report the uh, you know any findings that might have security impact. So uh, it's pretty powerful. It's pretty it's very useful. It's very useful. So. Uh, so along those lines, are you fuzzing more than just C libraries? Um, you know, as far as I know, as with that tool specifically, I'm not aware of anything outside of the the C realm being fuzzed. Uh, doesn't mean we aren't. Just I'm not aware of it. If so, okay, cool. All right, so that's App Tech Minute. Um, you know, if you're interested, the links are up on Slack or on the YouTube chat. Uh, but um, otherwise, we'll dive straight into, you know, I guess, introducing Daniel. You've already had a lot to say, obviously. Uh, one, of the <laughs> one of the instigators of the SecList project that's uh, you know, useful in testing and useful in fuzzing. Um, Ken, what, what else did you have from an introduction perspective? Yeah, I mean, if you don't know Daniel, Daniel, I mean, you mentioned pro the word prolific, so I'll bring it up to describe you as well. Um, you're an author uh, of... By the way, let me link to your book too. Um, and I need to add this to my reading list. Uh, the internet of, sorry, the internet of, the, the real internet of things is what I'm trying to say. Let me link to this. So you're an author and a uh, blogger. And I would, and by the way, I, so I've been, I've been subscribed to your newsletter for a long time. That newsletter is incredibly helpful. Um, so uh, yeah, no, thank you. I mean, on behalf of myself and anybody else who gets uh, a lot of use out of it. Um, thanks for doing that. And uh, so author, speaker, blogger, uh, podcaster, uh, you know, all around great guy. My per, uh, you and I met in person in 2017 at AppSec Cali. Um, yep. And that was, I'd never met you face-to-face uh, -face before. Um, and the one thing I wanted to say that sort of struck, uh, that kind of stuck out in my mind uh, was that you seem to be a very, just from that interaction, a very like good listener. Uh, you put a lot of thought into the words that come out of your mouth and um, uh, just seemed like a really, like you're pretty mindful and very present um, type of person. So uh, that was my initial impression of you is just a sort of a mindful, caring, uh, you know, patient thought out sort of person was the impression you gave. So. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. No, that was uh, that was a good lunch. Uh, it's been a while <laughs> since we haven't talked since, and we missed you this year. Uh, yeah, so I was you weren't hoping there. to be hoping to be down there again last uh, this last time. Yeah, yeah. I well, went to Enigma instead the, the week after, but hopefully next year I'll do both. Yeah, Enigma uh, seems to be a very very popular conference out there. Um, uh, especially um, similar to Locomoco Sec, with it being a sort of a like you were talking about before the podcast, a one track sort of uh, approach to it, um, which means which is good and bad, right? Your speakers all have to be very uh, engaging, or otherwise it yeah. can kind of throw off that um, that vibe. But uh, it doesn't seem to be a problem for either conference. Yeah. Um, so the first thing we wanted to ask you was about your background. Um, kind of giving, you know, there's been a lot of talk recently about how folks who are um, 
well known and have established a, a good career, um, how they went about doing that and uh, getting to hear about their background. And so that's what we wanted to, uh, you know, first find out what what was your, what is your background? Uh, how did you get into security? When did you kind of know this was going to be the career field for you? Um, yeah. Um, so out of high school, I joined the military. So I was uh, 11 Bravo, uh, Spanish linguist, um, but I spent some time in the intelligence group in my infantry battalion. Uh, when I got out, I went to a university in Georgia. And when I left university, I went right into uh, industry. But while I was in college, I actually thought I was gonna be pre-med. Um, I, I didn't really know exactly what I was gonna do, but I thought I was gonna be pre-med. And while studying in uh, the education lab, uh, the whole place was being trashed by various worms. Um, and so Windows machines are dropping everywhere. And I uh, had a mentor named Jason Orms, who uh, left shortly after and went to Fermilab, and he's still there. But um, he basically said, hey, we need to teach you uh, Linux. Uh, another mentor, Ken Swain, uh, taught me Linux as well. But um, had to spin up on Linux very quickly to defend the university network. It was like a fight or flight type situation. And um, as soon as that started happening, I was basically given a position to keep doing it because all the people left. And uh, I just got right into NetSec immediately. And from there, I went into AppSec. Uh, so after my first job, which was just generic security engineer um, at a credit card processing company, I went into pen testing. Um, then I went into AppSec and then I've basically been consulting uh, since then. Why the shift to application security? It's just what that, that next company needed. Um, yeah, they, they were very focused on testing websites, um, their own internal websites. You know, and it's funny because I had read recently, I read this and shared, by the way, uh, speaking of ex, uh, ex-military, I actually shared uh, your, I think it was... Like a week ago, you wrote how to build an InfoSec career article. And mm-hmm. I actually shared it with a, a friend of mine who's still in the Navy and going to retire in a few years mm-hmm. um, and was looking for advice. But um, I don't know why I got off on that, tan- that tangent. Um, oh, yeah. But um, from a... Uh, Matt, Seth, sorry. I'm, I'm completely blanking on the question I was going to ask. <laughs> No, it, it was about the transition from NetSec to AppSec. I mean, it sounds like right. it was. Yeah, sorry. You had mentioned learning to code inside of that article. Oh, right. Yeah. The way, the way I mentioned it there, some people have taken a little bit of uh, offense to, I guess. I basically said, if, if you don't learn to code, you'll always be dependent on someone who does know how to code. Um, so it's a pretty strong stance since a lot of people are like, you know, we could be technical without coding, which is absolutely true. And you don't even need to be technical to be good at InfoSec. Um, but I still believe that being able to code and you don't have to be like a full developer. I'm not a full developer, but I I can program. And I, I think just having that language available to you is, is really empowering. And having that means you could switch between, and that's basically what made me think of it was the fact you mentioned switching so easily between NetSec and AppSec. And I'm not sure if you knew 
any programming at that time, but um, certainly if you did, that would make the transition a bit easier. Yeah, so that's one thing I, I didn't mention. So one of my side jobs I was getting paid for while working in that education lab was building like some of the first online uh, web training courses. So basically uh, the School of Education professor wanted to do remote learning. So I, I was deep inside of uh, uh, front page, if you guys remember that. <laughs> yeah, um, I remember front page. <laughs> yeah, so I was deep inside of that and at the same time taking classes on uh, HTML and uh, Unix and stuff like that. So I was learning the fundamentals, but also messing around with uh, building actual websites for remote learning. So it was a little bit of web devy type situation. Um, and that gave me the underpinnings combined with the Unix to to just branch out from there. To, to me, everything's about, to me, InfoSec's about curiosity, right? All these silly little projects I have on GitHub, it's like, hey, I wonder what it would look like if I did this to the entire internet. And then you end up with something like, you know, robots disallowed or, or whatever. Um, yeah, so that's, that's the way I think about it. Like, I, I hate the idea that I have a cool idea and I'm curious, and now I have to ping someone who knows how to program to make that happen. Yeah, it becomes a, uh, well, there's nothing better than self-reliance, right? So if yeah. you can do it yourself, then even better. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's good advice in general, right? Somebody getting into whatever technical industry, you know, being able to actually figure things out on your own and actually and, and implement your ideas means you're going to come a lot fur further, right? If you have to go to the engineering team to actually implement something as simple as, hey, how do I scrape a website and get robots.txt? It's going to take a lot longer for that idea to see fruition and to know if it if, if it is anything at all, right? Whereas yeah. if you can go and spin something out, you know, create a shell script or whatever it is. And that, that's the thing, right? I, I know that there's a lot of like <clears throat> developers that will look down on shell scripting and, you know, some of the other techniques that, like system administrators use, yeah. but realistically, it's still programming, right? It's systems programming, or it's you know programming in a different style, uh, but it's still actually having computers do something for you. So there's there's no reason why it 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 shouldn't be classified the same, or at least you know be looked at as as a utility. Um, granted, you're not going to develop a full website or a, you know full database engine or a fuzzer in it. I mean, you probably right. could, but like just being able to solve those problems is going to lead you down different paths. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think it's just a, it's a matter of like, can you exercise your curiosity by yourself? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always wondered, about, I've been thinking about that recently too. You mentioned curiosity it was just the whole, like what personality type from a, from a Myers-Briggs. I don't know if you guys are into that at all. Um, well, or, you know, familiar with it, but Myers, uh, Myers Brig has, you know, their scale of personalities. And I always think like, I always wonder if this isn't the perfect field for like an INTP, somebody who's more of like the scientist type in the sense that they're constantly curious. But the only problem with that, um, that personality type is usually there's a, there's a difficulty with finishing projects, but, um, uh. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so, so I don't I don't have that I, I don't I have that problem at all. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I recommend um switching the model to um it's called Ocean. Ocean is like the, the coolest uh it's like the most respected current uh, model for personality. 
it's um it's or it's also called the big five um mm. but i have seen that most most people i think in our field or at least most people similar to me are uh, intj um that i think that's what i am but the ocean one is really really descriptive um it, as far as what i think what a good model is for infosec i i think it really does come down to curiosity being the primary one um because it's so much about how things work and how things uh, can be unmade, right? I feel like young people, when you first get into the field, you wanna pull on threads and have things fall down. Um, and uh, it, I think we're just naturally drawn to pen testing for that reason. But if you have an engineering approach and you're curious about how things work, you, you can pull fewer things with less effort to have more things fall down, right? You're just more efficient at breaking things. Yeah, I mean, if you know the system uh -huh. and then you have natural intuition, um, yep. then yeah, that's yeah. gonna play well together. I like, and that, I, okay, so that goes back to it, right? Actually having built websites before, be, before getting into application security, um, that that was always my my big complaint about kind of the net set guys that had the, had the, oh, we have just the vulnerability scanners, Oh, we're going to just use app scan and then that's going to tell us whether or not a website's secure. I'm like, yeah. okay, but if you understand what app scan is doing and how it's just a battering ram and it's trying to go through, it's not this like fine tuned, Hey, I've built a website before. I know a developer is doing X, Y, and Z probably. So if I spend half an hour on that, I'm probably going to get more results out of it than some scanner will. Right. Um, so yeah, I, like, I, I don't, that. I don't know if we focus on that enough, but you're absolutely right. I, and that's where something like, building those word lists out and being smart about it uh, really, I mean, it makes a difference in my life personally, but it's interesting to think about it from the, from the aspect of what the personalities are that are going into it. Yeah. Yeah. I really do feel like if, if someone told me, Hey, you're about to be an XYZ tester. Um, I would go get the stack, stand it up, learn it just inside and out, go take the class. I would just become a sysadmin of that thing, right? And it's the way to go. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, being able to, uh, I mean, like, I think that's one of the, the things that I always recommend to folks who are asking, you know, how do I do, how do I, how do I get better at AppSec or how do I build um, my base for AppSec? It's always go, you first need to build a website and you need yeah. to make it do something and it's got to accomplish whatever tasks you, you set up for it. Give it three things it's supposed to do or whatever, you know, it must have account management, must do whatever business thing, must have a, you know, sign in, sign out and yeah. see how easy or difficult that is. Make it look pretty, make it work well. Um, and then uh, do that a couple more times <laughs> and yeah. uh, you'll start to get a sense for things, but it's the best way to learn a framework. Um, especially frameworks. It's really, really helpful from that standpoint. Yep. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's one of the things, I, I mean, Ken and I have been teaching that how to code review course. And like we spend so much time harping on, if you don't understand what the framework does and how it's supposed to be implemented, there's no way to go in and find security vulnerabilities in it, right? Um, and it, yeah, I mean, on a daily basis, I run into that uh, from a you know code review perspective. I, I'm always throwing some new framework, and I'm like, "Huh, okay, well, I got to spend the first two or three days just learning how to build something in the framework." Because if I don't know how to do that, my my recommendations aren't going to be right. 
you know that, right? So yeah, I, I used to have this this mental model where um, there was answers coming from life just streaming at you at all times, and unless you had corresponding questions inside of your brain, like live and ready to catch, you wouldn't receive anything. So if you're a code reviewer. A code reviewer is looking at a piece of code and actively in their brain, they have like 20 questions and they're just like, there's this queue of questions and they're looking at these lines of code and they're waiting for the answer to hit that question. If you have no questions in your mind, then you can look at all the code you want and you just won't correspond to anything. Yeah. It's context. I think that's one thing we harp on a lot um, is context. Uh, just understanding the context of what you're looking at and seeing the full picture, not just what you're looking at, looking at, but how it fits into the, the bigger picture, I guess. So, um, so are you still doing application security? Uh, are you still, are you more of a capacity these days or um, what's your... Um, not, not so much AppSec. Um, I... I mean, I'm doing more AppSec on the side in terms of like uh, consulting and side projects. It's always just been my interest in terms of uh, tooling and stuff like that. But um, I'm doing lots of diff different stuff. Uh, I started the business recently, which is more NetSec, um, doing attack surface discovery uh, through AWS and external stuff, um, working on a machine learning project to basically predict votes based on who's uh, giving a candidate donations. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty wide range of stuff. Uh, IoT security top 10 just released uh, in December. So a number of different projects. Yeah, you've got, what was the uh, reasoning that you started the, the newsletter? Uh, it's, I'm really curious about that. It's a great, it's, seriously, it's an amazing resource. I always take the time to read it and um, thank you. Uh, but what made you, what made you start that, that newsletter? Um, just like the website with primers and tutorials, it, it starts with um, what, what do I wish I had, right? So when I would learn something, and this goes all the way back to 99 with uh, TCB dump, Primer. It's like when I would learn something, I would write it, write a tutorial for myself. So that when I was trying to explain it to somebody, I could just pull up my own tutorial and it would remind me. Uh, for the newsletter, this is the resource that I would like to consume, right? It's a, it's a mix between security, technology, and human news, and then like a whole bunch of links of discovery of stuff. So um, it keeps me fresh because I'm looking at hundreds or thousands of, of stories per week. Uh, it takes like five to 20 hours to curate the thing. Um, so wow. I get to see tons of stuff. Um, and then I've got to whittle that down to just a couple of dozen stories. So it's a good exercise. Um, and then it feels good to have, you know, someone find use from it. So it, I, it's a double whammy for me. Yeah, mission accomplished there. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have assumed it took more than 20 hours. You know, I, when I read that newsletter, knowing the fact that you have to curate that content and then form sort of an opinion on it, right? So, yeah, um, sometimes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that it's that's that seems less than what I would have expected. 
it, it ranges. It, like I said, sometimes it's, it, you know, only five hours or something. It, it's really weird how the mix uh, goes. Like sometimes there'll be no tech stories. Sometimes it'll be like 20 different security stories. Um, it's just how the news is that week or whatever I pay attention to. Do you prefer the, um, do you have a preference over technology or human stories? Um, one or the other more interesting to you? No, what what I super like is, um, I think my, my current tagline I'm kind of going for is, uh, it's like the intersection between security technology and humans, right? So when I look at security, I'm thinking, how is it impacting humanity? When I look at technology, I'm looking at the same thing. So uh, people keep talking about future, future this or futurist. Uh, I, don't, I don't really like that term because I think People who have that title uh, are usually kind of making up and selling something, which probably is going to be true. Uh, the way uh, Rich described it, um, Rich Mogul, he said, if you're a futurist, you're either going to get it wrong or you're going to be lucky. <laughs> right? Because, yeah. yeah, or it's obvious. It's either obvious you're going to be wrong or you're going to get lucky. Like there aren't too many other options besides that. One question that was asked um, was going back to Seclist was the what's the worst thing that you ever found with that Seclist? Um, just admin portals. I think Jason has found the worst stuff. Um, I'm not sure if he's talked about it publicly, but um, it really just admin portals and backup files. Uh, just zipped up entire directories of all the source code, uh, including all the passwords. Um, pretty common. It, that's why uh, that's why I've kind of uh, stopped doing some of the stuff. Is just I feel like I'm finding the same stuff over and over. It's, it gets depressing after a while. <laughs> depressing, repetitive. Yeah, I, I think Ken, Ken and I were just talking about that earlier today. Is you know there's only so much pen testing or whatever you can do before you feel that way. Um, because you know, and you think about the absolutely. first time you found XSS and, and it's like, Hey, right. You know, the 500th or 5,000th time that you find it, it's just, it's not the same. It's, it's almost depressing. Right. I don't even care anymore when I find it. I'm, I mean, I care in the sense of like, well, okay. In my current role, I don't really find XSS right. Very often. Um, mm -hmm. Just because, Oh, no, Seth, you're gonna, you're gonna blah, 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 blah. Well, previously though, if I and even now, I mean, if I find XSS, it's not, you know, I'm not like, oh, that's amazing. I'm like, why is this still happening? How is this possible? Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, well, yeah, I know why it's possible. And it's, me, yeah. it, it happened to me really bad in in NetSec. Um, the first few times, you know, you get a shell on a machine, and it's not your machine, especially. It, Back in the day when I was doing it, I mean, I'm doing piping Netcat back to myself. Um, just stuff stuff that I thought, thought was super creative. But then you're like, well, I have this on hundreds of hosts. And you go to the next place and it's on thousands of hosts. And it's like, ah, it, just, it, it stops feeling good. And it feels bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It feels the opposite of good. Yeah. 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 The uh, the other question, uh, which I guess, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm reading the, the, the I shouldn't read the chat, but I kind of have to read the chat at the same time. 
Um, yeah, I'm not going to ask that other question. Uh, well, I, you know what? I will, whatever. The other question was like, you know, what's the worst thing that you've seen added to the list that, that is like, you know, I guess I'm not sure if that means how many times you've seen it or, um, the most damaging thing that you could, you could find, but that was, uh, oh. one of the questions. Yeah. They're probably looking for, I don't know what they're looking for, but, um, I could tell you that we've had to prune, um, some fuzz strings that were, had questionable, uh, content in them in yeah. terms of like just language and words. And we're like, I don't think that's going to work. And I think you're just uploading that to be funny or something. But yeah, yeah, pretty offensive not... stuff. It is, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that's not necessarily in terms of impact, just it being not something, uh, yeah. So, oh, um, Seth, um, sorry, I'm reading, I'm catching, I'm catching back up between the two different channels. Yeah, no, you're fine. Um, so uh, like, tell me a little bit about Helios. That was the other thing that you talked about. And actually the machine learning stuff that you're doing is pretty interesting as well. Um, uh, are those are either of those something that you can talk about and like we can dig, dig yeah, into I, a little I can bit? Talk about both of them. Um, so the machine learning project is just a personal side project. Um, I basically am going to take the bios of every uh, senator and congressperson, um, take every donation that's that's happened from a donor, the amount and who it went to, and then take a the um, content of the actual legislation, combine all these together and then say, when a given bill comes up for, for voting, uh, I'm gonna give an actual percentage chance that a given person will vote for it. And my hypothesis, which I think is pretty obvious, is that um, it will mostly be affected by who's given them money. So imagine this just being a giant set of APIs, a public project where anyone can run any client and just ask the question, how is this person going to vote on a given piece of legislation, given the fact that their donors are these people? Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. So, I mean, as far as the donors go, you've got some, uh, you know, markup or at least some sort of data data enrichment that's got to go on so you kind of know all right this is a agricultural company or an oil company or whatever it is um is that is that the level that you're going to there as you're feeding that data in yeah exactly so all those things will basically be features inside of the the model um yeah i'm going to try to collect as much as possible so what's the size of the donation what is the uh orientation of the donation what other things has that donor given to, right? So they have basically a, an alignment, right? And then, uh, and then looking at the bios of the people as well. So if you pull the bios of the people, does that affect their votes more or does their donations from various sources affect their vote more? And, and the cool thing is since we'll have all the votes, well, for every piece of legislation going back however long, you'll be able to tweak the model backwards. Yeah, I, I mean, you could, because you can almost use, 
historical data to predict future results, right? You know, that's, well, yeah, I'm, that'll be I'm interesting gonna use to it actually to see. To make sure it's not super broken, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what, what machine learning, you know, technologies are you using for that? Where are you planning on rolling that out? Like what, what what's your, you know, kind of architecture of it? Uh, so I'm just getting started. I mean, right now I'm just looking at doing bag of words analysis on the, the various pieces of text, right? So first, first it's a crawling and scraping exercise, uh, which is where I'm starting first. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty new to the, the whole data science thing, but it's like one of my main areas of focus uh, for this year. Um, I just find it super interesting. So, um, and as far as rolling it out, I want to do it as an API. I just want to publish a website with a, a domain that's got like a brand on it. I think I'm going to call it like influence or something. Um, and then just have a giant API doc and then people could build clients around it. Yeah, I, I mean, that makes sense, right? I mean, it would be a, that's a pretty interesting. Who's sort of your customer base for this? Yeah. Nobody, the US population. Um, yeah, that's what I was gonna say. It's like, it's almost like that. No, it's, it's a free public service. There's no, there's, it's not a product or anything. Um, I, I just think it'd be cool. It, well, how about visualization as well, right? So imagine a graph database showing uh, a candidate to uh, with the strength of their particular donors and be able to see that visually combined with somehow visualizing what they voted on. So I, I think all of that would be really cool to just see, um, to see what influence actually looks like visually. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah I'm interested. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, considering all the political influence um, news that's occurred over the last year and some change, um, something like this would be, yeah, super useful, super helpful. Yep. Um, so the other one, Helios, I mean, uh, kind of pulled us pretty far from security. But um, so the other one, Helios, is definitely very security. Um, so basically I'm pulling live configs from uh, AWS on a regular basis uh, for all different object types. So Redshift, RDS, you know, load balancers, EC2, whatever, um, extracting the public IP for all of them, combining that with um, my other recon of that company for their traditional infrastructure, like all their external ranges. And then I'm basically monitoring that multiple times per hour uh, with a very, very fast port scanner. Um, and I'm only looking at very specific ports, like about around 40 ports or so. So, um, and then if any of those pop up, I'm letting the, the customer know uh, over Slack or email or Splunk or however they wanna know about it, that, hey, you just opened Kubernetes admin or you just opened uh, SSH or you just opened whatever. So I'm not looking for 443, I'm not looking for 80, I'm looking for only really, really bad things that are exposed and letting you know within minutes when it happens. So you imagine some, someone with a giant AWS infrastructure and their, their infrastructure is changing constantly. It's not like you can have an IP list. So it's changing constantly and you wanna know if someone just left out MongoDB 
or Cassandra or, or some kind of NoSQL database full of data. Um, and this will tell you. Which, I mean, Seth and I have had, so when Seth and I worked together um, at, you know, building another security consultancy, um, one of our, well, a couple of our clients asked for just something like this, where changes that, just just a way to know that some changes uh, were exposed and if there was a way to see if some new technology stack was put on the internet and, you know, open ports, default creds, stuff like that. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's big, exactly it. And, it's and a big the, problem. Asset inventory, asset management and inventory itself is very, is a very, I mean, I think we've talked about it on the podcast at least in five different episodes in terms of just saying like, this is a really diff- this is the first solution, by the way, that I think we've really come across um, because really we've just sort of been bitching about it on the, <laughs> the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, the asset management piece, uh, there are a couple of people doing that. I, I got a friend, uh, Jeremiah Grossman, everyone knows him. He, he's got a company doing it. Got another friend named Nick doing it. I know of another company that's doing it. It's it's really useful. Um, I'm doing the other side of it, which is the monitoring of what I'm seeing as opposed to the, uh, the full asset piece of it. But I, it's really just a project for me. It's not like I'm about to go and become some entrepreneur or something. I, I wrote the whole thing myself and it's just a, uh, just a project. I'm really looking to transfer it out actually probably sell it or give it to a CEO uh, very shortly. I mean, that's what happens with projects, right? You start, you start, you start them and they seem interesting at the time and then people start using it. And then you're like, I don't want to do this anymore. At least that's for me, that's been the case. Like, I don't really want to do this anymore. Uh, I have new interest. Yeah. So it's easy to, and nice when you can just hand it off to somebody else who's got the time and the interest. Exactly. So um, what is your preferred programming language? Um, Bash and Python. <laughs> we were talking about that earlier is like uh yeah me and jason talk about it all the time like i've written i don't know probably half a million five million lines of bash i always come back to it um when i want to do something web web oriented uh, i was a ruby person for a long time but I, i'm now switching back to python because of uh, machine learning uh that's the way the data science world is going. It's it's basically crushed R at this point. Uh, so I'm switching back to Python. But uh, I mean, Nokogiri was really powerful with uh, Ruby. Um, I like that. The, the main thing I do is at scale looking at websites, uh, scraping, crawling, stuff like that. So that that's like my main thing. So that's why Ruby and, and Python. Um, but other than that, I glue everything together with with that shell. Yeah, and for those not aware, Nokogiri is really great for parsing um, websites uh, or XML specifically. Um, yeah, which is yeah super useful. Um, I'm Seth gives me crap because I do a lot of Ruby even to this even to this day. I do a lot I like of Ruby. It. I like Ruby. It's elegant. I mean, I wish it would have won. I feel like it's just better Python. That's what I feel like. Thank you. Somebody said it. <laughs> it's better Python. Okay. It's, Ruby is better Python. That's what we're going to label this episode. <laughs> it's it's slightly more elegant. I, 
don't know. I, I wish it would have won, but looks like it's getting crushed. Oh man, Stefan said uh, Nokomiri is also good for CVs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's right. Can't argue with that. <laughs> he actually he wants me to shut it down now. <laughs> actually, Stefan had another question, which is sort of like I was debating whether or not we'd actually ask this, uh, but why not? You're into philosophy. He's into philosophy. So the question was. Um, Ask Daniel how existentialism and rhetoric help him define his horizons when communicating with clients. Interesting. And the uplifting um, that binds. I have an answer. Um, so, so basically, when I would do security consulting for companies, um, I would ask them what they care about. Okay. So, I mean, it's kind of like existentialism. I would ask them what they care about and find out that the stuff they've been working on actually is not in alignment with what they were actually trying to do. So that would bring security and their technology efforts uh, in, in line for the first time. And actually you can get a lot done security wise by just cleaning that up. So for example, um, oh, I had this thing that I was doing for a while. It's like, how much do you care about secure coding? And they say, oh, a lot, a whole lot. And I would draw these vector diagrams. If you remember from physics, where you have like a giant, crazy, thick arrow, because uh, a vector has a direction and a magnitude, right? Um, and I would ask them about their incentive structure. Like how do, how do, do developers get paid? And how do developer managers get paid? And they're like, oh, they get paid by not missing goals and rolling out features and blah, blah, blah. So I'd write this crazy giant arrow and call it features. And I would say, um, what, what do they get if they go to a secure code uh, class? Nothing. Okay, what do they get if they don't release any vulnerabilities? Nothing. So I would put on the piece of paper far away and in a different direction, this tiny little arrow. And I would map those out and they would have this giant heavy arrow called features and all the other ones would be facing random directions and they would be barely even visible on the page. And I would say, this is your, this, I would say, this is your org. Do we want to change anything about incentivization inside of your company? And they're like, oh no, we're not touching that. And it's like, okay, well you answered your question. You asked me why nobody went to your class why nobody is, uh, why they're still releasing security vulnerabilities. This piece of paper is why they're doing that. And until you change that, the other stuff isn't gonna change. And they're like, oh, well, I guess I could save a bunch of money on secure coding classes. That's 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 really, really great answer. Um, yeah, that's, well, and actually, so since we're discussing training, I mean, do you think that training, well, I guess I can kind of guess where your answer might go, right? When when I ask you, uh, do you think security training is worth it, worth the investment? It, it, I guess I would guess your answer would be it's up to the org on whether, or it, it's up to in, incentivizing it, right? Uh, or right. placing it, uh, basically having some reason why somebody would care about the training. Um, are there any other thoughts that though that you might have on uh, whether or not training is is useful or is it just entirely dependent on how the org is structured for those for it being incentivized? Yeah, I, I feel like the org has to really 
encourage and reward people who change their behavior at all. And they would have to know that their behavior changed uh, based on going to the class, right? So if, if they still produce the same amount of volumes, but minus 20%, and the org has no way of knowing that, then why do they go to the class? Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, you, you really need to be able to make a big mark for that to happen, right? For it to be useful. I, I think um, I actually did a Twitter poll this morning. Must have been thinking about the podcast. Um, what was more useful, secure code training or um, secure defaults inside of frameworks? Oh, that's, that's a really good one. Or WAF uh, slash RASP type technologies or other. And my assumption was going to be absolutely secure defaults. I, I think. I think 90%, I'm guessing 90% of progress that we're going to make in AppSec, you know, going back 10 years and going forward 10 years is going to be from secure defaults, right? I think the whole idea of look at the lock icon, look at all this different UI stuff, train people to act differently, it doesn't work um, largely. What works is having them not able to make the mistake right and, and that's why i love that thing that happened to amazon where someone fat fingered and like deleted a region and everyone's like yeah everyone's like oh they're gonna smash this person they're gonna get crushed and amazon comes back and says they did nothing wrong it shouldn't have been possible yeah same as uh same same timeline uh with the um probably a different outcome uh the hawaii um fake well, oh yeah, yeah. Missile or yeah. where the UI was just too easy for that mistake to have uh, been made. I believe was the situation. Mm. I, that's an interesting, uh, like, point that you're making, Daniel. I, like, we when we had or when Jim was on Manico, right? Mm -hmm. um, he like that was kind of his big push as well as like one, until we get to kind of this the secure framework, we're still going to, we're always going to have problems, right? Yep. With XSS or whatever, right? It's just like we give developers the option and it's, it's never going to solve itself. Uh, you know? Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it like the whole incentive question, like changing people's behavior uh, via secure code training or whatever else, um, like I, I run into this constantly because I, because I, I do train and I, I like I don't know how to solve it for an organization. Like it, yeah, they've got to do you, it themselves, right? If you can make them want to change, right? I mean, Jim has the best training. I think I, I really love his training. And um, if someone, if the org goes there and sees it, and they're empowered, and they're actually going to make changes because of it, then he can have a massive impact and he does have a massive impact, but if they're being forced to go and nothing's going to change, like it just won't matter. Um, and, and so uh, another good example of this incentive thing, I don't know if you saw um, it's security overall. It's, it's not really WebSec or anything, but um, I did a thing called uh, why software is still insecure. Um, something like that. I forgot what it was called. Something like that. And basically I have this giant green mountain on the left. And that mountain has like 
all of technology progress going back through time, right? It's got like Excel, um, the internet, like all these different things. And it's this giant mountain. This is everything that technology built on garbage has given us. And then over here on the right is this tiny little mountain. And it's like a couple of CVs, <laughs> right? Right. And so, so imagine being like a society or a country or a company and you have over here the possibility to make billions of dollars producing garbage, just like the whole internet is built on, or you have the possibility of creating this, this unicorn pure thing, um, which is devoid of vulnerabilities, but probably also won't ship because it's so hard. People will continue to produce garbage software because it works so well. Like everything we're doing right now is powered on software that's just horribly flawed. And that's why people keep doing it. So the downside is the only thing that will change us producing bad software is when producing that bad software results in death, right? When we put everything in IoT and cars start crashing and people start dying, you know, medical situations, when that happens, uh, then people are going to say, okay, secure coding, tell me about secure coding. I suddenly care about that a lot. But I feel like until then, it's just uh, people will pretend to care, but won't actually. Well, people like cheap, fast, and easy, right? That's why there are so many Walmarts in America. There, you know, there's a, there's a reason for McDonald's for, it's the same, it's the same principle, right? It's just, um, it being that cheap, fast, uh, easy type um, sort well, of I mean, uh, what people are yeah. driven by. I mean, if you look at the number of loans in any particular stack that, let's go back 10 years, right? So what is it, 19? So 2009, how, what number of loans were on a stack that you would just use to do a video conference, right? Um, you think of the most common software. It was just riddled with with stuff, but somehow it all functions. It all it all still works, and until it stops working, people will they, they won't change their behavior. Yeah, there's no there's no incentive. Well, there's no incentive too. I mean, I do like your I like your point about secure defaults for the simple fact that every time that a um, developer has to go and say, well, um, this. This uh, this action isn't working when I send content to it. What's going on? And like there was a CSERF protection automatically placed on that, and they didn't maybe declare a, a decorator or something like that. Um, yeah. It requires them to then go figure that out, figure out what is CSERF, you know, why is that important? What is the framework doing? Um, and even if you override the secure defaults, you still had to learn what they're. You might have at least glazed over the paragraph that des describes why that function uh, is the way that it is and the way it's configured, or the reason it's configured that way and what it does. Yeah. So that can be a learning tool in and of itself, I guess. Yeah, I, I just feel like the human attention, developer attention, like we're, we're lucky to get them to produce the functionality, to, to place the burden on them to research I mean, because you know how it is to code. I mean, you're just thinking about this one central thing. And if a thing pops up and says, go research secure coding, 
majority of the time they're just going to dismiss it and keep going. Um, I really think the secure default is is kind of the only path here. I, I would have to agree with you. I mean, even if you know the vulnerability, even if you, so like my thought on training has changed over time as it, as it, uh, as, as it pertains to developers. And even if you know how a vulnerability could be introduced, um, that doesn't mean that you're not going to introduce it. Right. Yeah. I say that as somebody who has done that accidentally as an AppSec professional building web applications, um, yep. accidentally introduce stuff. Yeah. So it's, it's totally, it's not a guarantee that knowing will fix anything, but safer defaults certainly help uh, auto escaping in templated uh, language, uh, template languages helps and technology mm -hmm. stacks. Um, so like on the, on the training front, Daniel, have you had success helping a company change its incentive structure to actually like implement secure coding? Or have you seen a company turn that around? Um, to some degree. Yeah. I mean, I would be trying to engage at the, at the C level for these companies, which means mm -hmm. if I could get them to say, Oh, now I get it. Um, to the extent that that happens, it does help. But most most assistance has really been at the more technical levels, just finding and prioritizing problems. Um, I, I would say moderate success in that area. Yeah. Yeah, I, like I, the, the problem that I always run into is that most of the training that I like, <clears throat> PCI mandates the secure code training for developers, right? Yeah. But every time that I go and give a course that's related to that, it's very difficult to get them to care, right? Most of the of time course. they're sitting there yeah. code, coding during the during the course because they look at it as, crap, I got to go for eight hours and listen to someone who talk about secure coding. And all yep. it's going to do is it's going to kill my incentives. I'm not going to meet my features for this sprint or whatever it is. That's exactly it. And yeah, it, it's like it, as engaging as you try to be, it's never... It it doesn't it doesn't influence what their paycheck looks like at the end of that quarter or that end of that year. So, or even yeah. worse, it negatively influences it, right? Because yeah. this is time they could have been rolling out features, right? Yeah, so, and, and even even management who's paying for it says the same thing. Well, we don't want to take all our, all of our developers away for you know a full day, so we'll only give you half of them, or yeah. we're going to spread it out over three days so that we still have people working on features, and hopefully that alleviates some of it. But I like I'm having a hard time thinking back across my career at, at to some into some of those trainings and saying, yes, it was very effective in eliminating problems in an organization. There, there have been times I know, and this has probably happened for you though, to that go against this. There have been times where I've been giving training and somebody's like, oh crap. And they go in and they fix something right there. That, that has happened. Um, and Seth, I mean, I assume that's happened for you. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, definitely there, there is like, there's those outliers. That's what I'm saying. But like as an organization as a whole, that's what I was kind of asking Daniel about. Um, like, I don't know if that's ever like coming in as a trainer, I don't feel like that's ever been the case that I've been able to like shift the thinking of an organization. Right? Yeah, and I, I think here's an interesting example. Like what if, what if at the first day of class, the manager came in and said, hey, we're implementing this new metric. 
It's called uh, Volms released or whatever. And everyone is going to have Volms associated with them. And if their Volm numbers are within this low range, they get paid more. If it's in this lower range, they get paid even more. You wouldn't have anyone looking down. You wouldn't have anyone coding. They would be paying extraordinary attention to you, right? And that just shows yeah. how clearly it's tied to what they're getting from it. Yeah. 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 I, I don't know. It's like, I, you know, there's a few that are coming up that I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to think about a little bit, right? Just based on the discussion on, okay, is there, a, is there a discussion that needs to be had with management before we go into those situations to actually influence some sort of change and to, how to go about that? So, Yeah, and there's, there's actually people who are studying this and doing really uh, good work on trying to incentivize without giving money. So they're like, oh, we're going to make you a security champion if you have fewer volumes. We're going we're gonna to give out teddy bears. We're going to give out different things. So there's different ways to reward separate from just improving their paycheck. Because usually that's an HR conversation, which doesn't know anything about secure code. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the, the, usually the motivation, well, ideally the motivation for folks comes, um, or the strongest motivation is an intrinsic one. So then you almost have to think how much of this training conversation makes sense to be technical and then how much of it it should be built upon b building a story of importance maybe around like why you want to know or put, put yeah. some energy into this. Yeah. So I've, I've done that before as well. I basically, um, I actually pulled up LinkedIn uh, at one point and pulled up like some salary sites. And I was like, all right, so check it out. Here's a developer with security expertise and here's how much they command. Right. And here's here's just a regular run of the mill developer, and they're going to make a lot less. So basically, if you turn this skill set, which I'm about to teach you, into something you could talk about and articulate inside of interviews, you're going to make 40 to whatever, 100% more, right? whatever numbers you can support. Now, suddenly, the best developers in there who are thinking long term are going to be like, oh, this is a career move for me. This is a way to up level. And so you might get, you know, 10%, 50% of the developers in the room if you're at a really sharp place who are like, okay, now I'm going to pay attention because I want to better my career. Hmm. I mean, I wonder if there's a, uh, because not, you know, I mean, I think Atlassian uh, put out some information on this. It was regarding uh, uh, money not money not being an incentive at a, at a certain point, like after making a certain amount of money, it doesn't, uh, it's not something that's really a, a huge factor. There has to be something yeah. else. And so I almost feel like this has to be something that is, uh, I don't know the answer. I don't know if it's, Hey, you, uh, think of it as a, uh, you know, you as a developer, think of it as like a, a puzzle or a challenge or something like that to find mm -hmm. areas where you could, where there could be problems and you try and find them before anyone else does. Or, you know, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I really don't know the answer, but I feel like it has to go deeper than money and it has to be more of something that, that is, uh, it's more of like a, an emotional. Uh, I love that. That's a good, um, that, that's actually got me thinking. So I read this book called Skin in the Game. Uh, actually, 
there's like nine books in his thing, uh, Nassim Taleb. But he's talking about skin in the game. Uh, bridge builders uh, back during Roman times, I believe. So if you're a bridge builder, you build the bridge, then you take your family and you live under it. then people are going over it the whole time and it's like do you back your work right so imagine being a software builder and to your point you just say hey look stand behind your work don't build bridges leave and then have it fall down later like because that's a matter of personal pride in your craft that's a that's a really nice way to frame it yeah, I think that you know that that's one thing that gets missed so often from the conversation is that developers do care. I mean, this is this is your work. This is what you this is what you do. This is what you're producing, and you want it to. Typically, developers do want their they do want to produce something of quality. Um, even even so, even so much so that we have those arguments with uh, with product managers about this can't don't hurry this up because you know this is gonna. Yeah, a constant battle of I want to have super quality code versus you know timelines. And uh, anyways, I I do think that that that's kind of an awesome way to look at it because developers do have a lot of pride in what they build. Yeah, and if you think about the bridge analogy, I mean, this would be some kind of like lattice bridge. I mean, especially APIs. I mean, how many things are calling a particular piece of software, especially an important piece of software, where if it breaks something else will break or be insecure. Um, yeah, it, it, some kind of connected, you know, matrix of bridges. And it's like, do you want to have yours be the, the weak link in this thing and find out years later? Hopefully they would say no. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think about my time, like developing different things and it's it's always, like it's a, it's a nice ego boost to go back to a company that worked that you worked for 15 years ago and they're like oh that's that's like a dependent part of our infrastructure and we use it still and it's like yeah yep. great it's not like giving anything to me anymore but I'm like prouder of that like hey guess what that code that I wrote and that all that time and effort that I put into it was totally worth it because it is still a piece that they value totally. so yeah I, I I can see that and actually like. Now I'm trying to figure out, okay, how do I how do I represent that at the beginning of a course where it's like, oh, this is PCI mandated. You gotta you gotta come in and talk to me for a day. Um, no, that's that's great. I, I, I feel, I feel like we could take the combination of all these things that we've talked about, and maybe that's one slide. These are all the different reasons you should care about this course, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, because you're you're right, Seth. You get forced in that sort of that weird situation where it's a compliance checkbox. And then also like, that's how that, I feel like that's how you end up with people that shouldn't be in the course as well. Like uh, Q, Q, QA, uh, QA folks, cause that's a different course for QA folks than it is for developers in my, in my mm-hmm. mind. And uh, what, I've had some other, um, totally. Yeah, I've had project managers, managers yeah, stuff like that. Non-technical folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So but yeah, that driver definitely can tend to cheapen it. But if you can, if you can start that conversation, uh, like like Daniel had mentioned, with combining all those those various reasons why you should care, then yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm I'm already thinking about okay, why are we here? You know, the why are we here slide. 
you know, changing that from why are we here or why you want to be here. That's that's yeah. a good discussion to have. So cool. maybe even just well, say who who wishes they weren't here. Yeah, that's a that's a good way to start it. <laughs> just to call, just to bring it right to the forefront and just have like three quarters of the class and be like, okay, now I have your attention. Here's why you know you should pay attention. <laughs> Here's why you want to be here. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's good. Cool. Yeah. Well, uh, Daniel, I mean, we've been going for you know, we're already 15 minutes over an hour or plus that. So, uh, but we really appreciate you coming on, like uh, all the thoughts and you know what you're doing in the community as well it's it's super interesting it's interesting to watch you know what what you're outputting and um yeah keep it up man it's it, it's very valuable to us i know it is right we've we've had a lot of people bring your name up as you know as someone that they respect in the community so kudos on that yeah well, thank we had you that. so much for having me we had really we had it. several people ask for daniel to come on for sure and, uh, you know, I'm bringing, I'm, uh, Jason White, who was on the podcast before myself are rolling out training. So like for what it's worth, this conversation has really helped me to, 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 to think about how we're going to frame that, um, this training initiative that we're rolling out. Um, it, thank you. It's, that has actually genuinely been super helpful in, in kind of how to, how to go about that. So appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. So Seth, uh, typically this is the point that we ask Daniel if there's if there are any conferences um, that you're going to be at in the next six months where people can catch you. Um, I know RSA is coming up. I imagine you're you're in the Bay Area, right? Yeah, I live like five miles from Moscone, so I'll definitely be at RSA. I'll be at um, Black Hat DefCon and uh, Absec Cali and Enigma. Those are like the must-haves. Awesome. Yeah, well, I hope to be at AppSec Cali 2020. Um, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Same here. Um, otherwise, uh, Daniel, they can find your website, danielmiesler.com, or on Twitter. Um, I know you're pretty active on both of those places. Sign up for his newsletter if you're listening. Uh, it's a great you know resource just to, just to have in your back pocket. Um, but... I mean, anything else that, any final thoughts before we close this up, Daniel? No, just thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Um, otherwise, uh, Ken, uh, you know, same time. Well, actually, it's going to be a different time next week, or is it same time next week? I can't remember. I can't remember. That's a whole week away. That's that's future Ken and future Seth's problem. Uh, that's true. I, I actually think it is. I think is it, I think Kevin Cody's coming back on next week. Um, so that's same time. But in a couple of weeks, we've got somebody that's, I can't remember, in a different location. <laughs> so we may be doing it earlier in the day or something oh, like that. Oh, that's right. Yes, we have our, uh, but that's, I think that's uh, February 26th. So yeah, not uh, not next week, but the week after we're going to have Omar uh, Hevroni. Hopefully, hopefully I'm saying that uh, right. And uh, he's in, what is it, Israel, I believe. Um, so yeah. yeah, that's going to be quite a bit of a, we're going to adjust our times based off that. We'll, we'll yeah. give the heads up next week. I like what you guys are doing. I, I like the conversation that you guys are doing here. Thanks. We appreciate Thanks, that. We man. wanted to do something that wasn't uh, paid for, was just informal, was just yeah. people trying to... I like the format. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in the future, you know, if you're, you're interested, we'd definitely like to have you back on sometime. Um, 
talk about sure. you know, updates and then anything else. Like we can talk about training and other things. But if you're up for it, we'll put you on the list of, you know, rotating guests, I, I guess is sure. what we we'll call it. Appreciate it. Um, other than that, Ken, I you know I think we're good for tonight. Uh, thanks everybody for joining, Daniel. Once again, thank you so much. And, Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right. Well, everybody, appreciate you tuning in. Bye. Take care. Bye. Right. Have a good night.